We just come before you. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to see what you'd have us to see from it. And we ask your Holy Spirit to lead and guide in all that we examine and that you will be with us in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 97. This is, I'm going to read through the whole psalm to start with. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of the isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are around about him. Righteous and ju- Righteousness and judgments are the inhabitation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies around about. His lightnings enlightening the earth. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord the whole of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols, Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You that love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them that out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. So we're going to look at this. You know, this is a very upbeat psalm, which is kind of unusual at various times. But it starts out, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. And I love this. The the Lord reigns, and we know that he reigns. This is... That one little phrase is so important. The Lord reigns. He still reigns. He has always reigned, and he always will reign. And this rules, rules, rules. This is the the, uh, king being in charge. He will never not be in charge even during the tribulation period where some pastors will preach that God is not doing anything. You know, and I've heard people kind of say, well, the Holy Spirit's gone. God's not doing anything other than judging the world. God reigns during that period of time as well. Satan still will not be able to do everything that he wants to do, even in the time when he is apparently in charge of everything, God still will hold a leash on him. Because if he had his way during that period of time, he would destroy all of humanity and give God no chance at redeeming them. So God's going to tell him, you can do a lot, but you can't kill all of humanity. And so we see this, God always is in charge. This one little phrase should give us such comfort. Nothing happens that God does not allow. And this, when we things happen to us, how many times when we see or we hear people, maybe we've said it ourselves, but we definitely hear it from others. How could God let such and such happen? Well, he's letting it happen because he has a reason for it. It's the consequence of sin. And sin does have consequence. And God lets those consequences reign and, over most of the time. And this is what I say. Even though we're forgiven, there are oftentimes consequences that we have to go through when we sin. And can God change those consequences? Yes, he is capable of changing those consequences. Does he? Not most of the time. Most of the time he lets us suffer the consequences for our sin, but he always reigns. He's always in charge. 
And it says, let the earth rejoice. And this particular word for rejoice, uh, earth, is not literally the globe, but all the peoples of the world. Okay, so he's saying all the people of all the earth rejoice. Rejoice, lift God up, exult in him. This is so important. Then he goes, and if that's not enough, he says, and let the multitudes of the islands be glad thereof. So in case you're not part of the earth, you, you know, he's also including the islands. And this is kind of what the, the Jew, this is the Jewish mentality. You've got Jerusalem and their surrounding area, and then you've got the rest of the world. <laughs> okay. And, and this is poetry. And, this, and remember, we've talked about how his poetry, you know, compares in, Ju, in Judaism. They're par, they're, they parallel and repeat themselves. So in this way, he's kind of just saying the whole earth and, and all the islands on the earth you know, everybody just rejoice. And so we see this. And then he says, clouds and darkness are around about him. And this one kind of intrigued me. So I did a little deeper study on this. You know, how often do we see God in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, represented as cloud? He led the children of Israel by a pillar of cloud. He descended upon Mount Sinai with cloud and lightning and, and thunders. He covered the tabernacle with the Shekinah glory, the cloud of his glory, which darkened everything as they looked at it. So this, this cloud and darkness kind of work together. The idea that he obscures himself from sight when he comes down in these clouds. The tabernacle, when it was consecrated, had the, the cloud fall upon it. Jesus was taken away in a cloud at the, at the resurrection. During the transfiguration, a cloud descended upon them when Peter so wonderfully, and I love the way you put it, not knowing what to say, he said, shall we build booze for you, <laughs> for the three of you? You know, Paul, uh, Peter was one of those guys, like so many of us, when you don't know what to say, say something stupid. <laughs> okay, and, and so, but I love the way it phrases it. Because he didn't know what to say, <laughs> he, suggested that he, <laughs> he suggested that they build, a, build tabernacles. And God, and he said that God came down in a cloud and he said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Okay, this is the second time that he'd spoken about his son. And he did it from the presence of a cloud. Uh, we see in Revelation that he comes in the clouds to call his people back. You know, these, these verses are just, the cloud oftentimes is a representation of the way God appears to people. Mm -hmm. The cloud covered the temple. And in Ezekiel, he looks up and it was as the, a man sitting on the cloud. So this is not something that is unheard of to the Jews to understand. They understand this idea of God being represented by the cloud. And also darkness. I mean, this is, and I believe this is more the obscurity that God is not seen by man. So he, so he had this obscurity and darkness that's involved in it. And so he says, clouds and darkness are around about him. And then righteousness and judgment are the inhabitation of his throne. Righteousness, one of the definitions for righteousness is what is right, just, or no, normal. Right, just, or normal. Now our world is working real hard at changing the right, just, and normal. Righteousness. Righteousness is what is right, just, and normal. Okay. 
And our conscience in our life tells us what is righteous. And unless we sear our conscience because of our constant disobedience. But this world is constantly trying to change the definition of righteousness. Okay? We've had this whole thing that's been broiling for a little over a year about uh, homosexual marriage. And everybody really knows that it's wrong and not right, and yet they want to say it's right. Uh, the world has been working for a long time on, on this whole idea that there's no absolute uh, righteousness or absolute standard of morality. Now, we all know that there is. So does the world. The world knows what's right and wrong. Especially when it affects them. Right, especially when it affects them. Uh, and that was the way when I was in college that I used to really talk, I work with people, and they would try to tell me that they didn't believe that there was any absolute rights. I'm going, are you absolutely sure there's no absolute rights, which was a contradiction in and of itself, because as soon as they said yes, I'm going, okay, you, you are absolutely sure that there's no absolute rights. You know, so that doesn't make any sense, because you just made an absolute statement. But then I would do something like pick up their, pick up their keys if they had them sitting next to them and walk away with their keys and they go, what are you doing? And well, I go, I see, I've got a car I've got to go sell, uh, a house that I've got to go sell. They go, well, you can't do that. I go, why? Because it's mine. I go, I don't believe you absolutely own this stuff. I'm going to go sell it and, and make some money. And they go, well, you can't do that. And I throw them back to them and go, don't tell me you don't believe in absolute, absolute, because you just proved to me you do. So we see this, the world is working really hard to try to change the idea that God has absolute standards that are ingrained into us by our conscience. And we must trust God's word and really believe his word that what he says is true because it will resonate with our conscience. And I've said this over and over, and I heard it originally from Dr. McGee, and I don't know if he heard it from somebody else, but he goes where I, where he says where McGee and God and the word disagree, God's right and, and McGee's wrong. Okay, and we need to have that attitude. When we're reading the scripture, if we don't agree with what we say, the problem is not God's word. The problem is us. And then we need to go to God and say, God, I need you to help me accept what your word says. And usually where we don't accept it is where it kind of uh, pokes fun at what, who we are and what we, our sin. Yeah. Yeah, our sin that we don't want to admit is usually when we disagree with what, what we're reading in the Bible and it says, you shouldn't do this. And I go, well, I don't know if I agree with that because I do it all the time. And, you know, we need at that point to agree that uh, the Bible's right and we're wrong and we need to change our sin to match God's righteousness. But all of this is what is right. Okay, not what do we think is right, but what is right. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There is a right. There is truth. And how do we know it? We get into the word of God. And we get to understand this is what is true. Regardless of what I think, regardless of what the world tells me, regardless of whether the world even accepts it or not. Okay? And we as Christians get in trouble quite frequently when we say, this is what God says about this topic. And I'm going to stand with him. And then they tell us, you know, they call us all kinds of names and everything else because they really, because the real problem is their conscience is pricked and they go, 
uh, uh, their internal body is saying, I know what they said is true, but I can't allow it to be true. And, they'll, and they don't have an argument against us, so what do you do when you don't have an argument? You call people names and you, and you try to belittle them. And this, is, this happens all the time, and you see it all the time. When, when somebody has no argument against what you're saying, you are going to be attacked personally or belittled. And we have to be careful that we don't do that when we're sharing the gospel with people and somebody asks us something we don't know. Because sometimes people will, well, you just don't know enough about God, did you? <laughs> and, and we start getting very attacking of them rather than go, and the real question is, you know what, you just asked me a question I don't really have a good answer for. I need to go back and find an answer, and I'll, I'd love to come back with you and share, share the answer that I find. Because if we start attacking them in their personality or attack them who they are, then we've shut them down. We will never be able to go back to them and talk to them again. And so we got to understand that sometimes there are questions we're going to be asked that we just don't know the answer. It may be because we've never thought about the question. And that's a great possibility because somebody asked me something the other day, you know, that I had never, ever thought about. And I'm going, I don't know. I'll have to look that one up. I'll have to get into that one. But it's easy enough for us to be asked something that we've never contemplated, that sometimes the world has contemplated. And so we just want to be able to say, good question. Let me go find that answer for you. Let me go look that up. Because the one thing we know, and we've shared so many times, there's nothing new under the sun. Any question they ask you has been asked by somebody at some point in time and has been answered by some theologian somewhere. So it's not hard to go back and find some answers if you just, once you know the question that needs to be answered. But we're not, and none of us are ever going to have thought of every possible question that could be asked. Because, number one, we start from a biblical point of view. And this is one of the things I share with Annie a lot of time, because she says, this is my answer. I'm going, that's because you're coming from a biblical point of view. And sometimes we have to accept that some people are coming from it not from a biblical point of view. And our biblical point of view may not be an answer to them. We have to be ready to defend that answer beyond just this is what the Bible says. And that's a good answer. Believe me, it's a good answer. That's the only one you want to give somebody that's good. But if you're talking to this generation that's growing up today and probably since the 60s and 70s, especially the 70s, they have been taught to question everything. So just telling them the Bible says so is not going to be sufficient for the average person raised from the 70s on and even into the 60s because they were taught question everything. Well, you're telling me the Bible's authority. First, you better prove to them the Bible's authority before you try to start saying the Bible is the only authority. Now, the good news for us, if you use the Bible as your answer and you give them a scripture, is God does, says, does say that his word does not return void. So giving them a specific word in the Bible and specific verses in the Bible will help anyway. Even if they don't believe it, and that's what I tell you, when I witness to somebody, I'm going to use the Romans road. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Whether they believe it or not does not matter to me. That is the word of God. But there are certain places where 
you need to be able to give them a verse. Just don't tell them the Bible says. <laughs> okay, because that really doesn't hold any water with them. And if they're not even going to believe your specific verse, just telling them the Bible says doesn't help. But also we may have to prove to them, spend some time telling them why the Bible is true. You know, this is one of the things I liked about the class they had in the Sunday school just about two, three weeks ago that was talking about why the 27 books of the New Testament? Why are they true? Why are they authoritative? Okay, very important to know these things and be able to say this, this is the history. This is, this is why we know these things are true. Not, not to try to convince them, but to say, if you really research the facts, you're going to find out what the scriptures say. And this is why I tell, you, I tell everybody, when, they, when you ever hear somebody, well, the Bible is just full of all kinds of contradictions and, and falsehoods, challenge them to show, tell you one. Because what they're going to do, well, I just know, I've heard it, heard, everybody says it is full. No, no, give me one, because I've studied it for a long time, there aren't any. And challenge them, because if they really, truly try to get in and find them, they're not going to find them. And then all of a sudden they have to go, okay, now maybe I have to pay attention to this because the book is accurate. And that changes their mindset because now all of a sudden they, they can continue to say it's full of errors and, and all that, but now they're lying to themselves. And so you challenge them. Everybody who honestly looks for the contradiction, honestly tries to disprove Christianity, gets saved. Okay? It's just what happens because truth can be handled can handle being examined. The other religious books cannot handle being examined because they're lies and it falls apart the closer you look at them. And so the Bible holds up and we don't need to worry about that. But God's righteousness and his judgment is his habitation. He dwells in this. And I love judgments. He makes decisions for this world as, a ju as the judge of this world. And his, right, his decisions are righteous. His decisions will always be righteous. And this is why when somebody goes, well, you know, you just told me Jesus is the way, the truth, and the, and, and the, the, way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to him by the What about all those millions of people who have never heard of him? God is the righteous judge, and he'll figure out what to do with them. Besides which, they probably know the truth. At least they know their conscience. They know the truth. And if they're operating within their conscience and, and leaning to God, then God is going to be showing them the gospel. It's amazing how many Muslims in the Arab world are having visions of Jesus telling them that he is the Messiah and he is the way to eternal life. And we hear those testimonies frequently coming out of the Muslim world. Why? Because many Muslims are truly seeking God. And if they are truly seeking God, God's going to reveal himself to them. And he does. Okay, and this is the idea. If, if somebody is truly seeking God in some other religion, then God will reveal himself for who he is. Because if they're really wanting to find him, he's going to make himself plain to them. And they'll have to choose not to follow him. And because he is the righteous judge. <laughs> he is the judge that will judge righteously and correctly, and he will provide the information. And I've shared with you, I read so many biographies of, of missionaries when I was young, and it was amazing how many of these guys that went to Africa and South America, and what they said is they would be told, we've been waiting for somebody to give us the rest of the story. 
Okay? They had part of the story. They had enough to be able to follow God, but they wanted the rest of the story. How did that happen? Who knows how it happened? I don't know. The gospel has been presented for centuries, and it's in the sky, and it's written in the stars above them, and they look at the story of the, of the heavens. And you see the different constellations themselves have the story, starting with Virgo the Virgin and walking its way around to Leo the Lion as the king of the, king of the universe. And it shows all these different pictures. You've got this, the picture of Orion with his foot over the serpent's head being ready to crush it and the serpent's teeth are open to strike his heel. You've got all of these, these things that are in the sky showing God's gospel message. So very, if they know nothing but that, they know enough to get saved. They may not know the name of Jesus being that, but they'll say, there's a Messiah up there. They were shown up there. And it's very amazing when you, when you look at that. The ancient world has known the story of the gospel for a long time. This is how Satan duplicated it during, the, during Babylon and every, all through till Jesus was resurrected to show the gospel story in a mythological mutated format that people will look at and see, well, the gospel, the Christian message is just a fulfillment of all these other religions. No, Satan knew the message and, and perverted it before it happened. It's not a hard thing to understand when you know that God knows the beginning from the end and he's had the story out there forever. And, and the real gospel story is the one that makes true stories. If you've ever read a story that, especially in our new age movement where somebody tries to make bad win, those stories never go over well. A movie where bad wins out, people come out of the theater look, shaking their head like there's something wrong. And because they're not from a Christian point of view, they don't know and really understand what's wrong. Bad does not win in the end, and it never does in a good story. All good stories have the good winning in the, after, after having hardships and trials to go through. Jesus was the one who went through the hardships and trials, died and was resurrected so that he could bring us to, to completion and all good stories follow that pattern. And if they don't, you come away. You know, have you ever read a story where nothing bad happens to the, to the hero? Mm -hmm. you, know, you don't read very many. There's a handful of them out there, but they're really boring stories. Hero wins the whole everywhere, you know, and it's like that's not the way the hero, the hero is supposed to have a really hard time, almost get beaten, and then be victorious. Otherwise, he's not, he or she is not a hero. I write screenplays. No conflict, no story. Yeah. That's the first rule. No conflict, no story. Yeah, you've got to have conflict. Your hero has to have a hard time and win, but that is God's story. He has his villain, he has the villain in, the, in Satan who tempts his people, makes it hard. The hero is, in Jesus' case, you know, is killed and is resurrected for victory with the, the ultimate victory. All good stories have to have that, and it's God's story. It's the one that he wrote. And so we see this, and in verse 3 it says, A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about him. And this is a fire of judgment. God's fire of judgment goes out from around him and just consumes any enemies. And we think about this with Elijah. When, they, when the army was coming to arrest him from the king, and his servants all, all upset, and, and Elijah says, uh, God, open the eyes of my servant. And he looks out, and the army that's surrounding them is surrounded by the, by the angelic forces. 
Uh, this happens to us all the time. God has the angelic forces to protect us when we need it. And because he is reigning. Nothing happens to us unless he allows it. And we see this, we look back through the history of the scriptures and how many times did God rescue his people? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, uh, they go to, go to Nebuchadnezzar. Our God can deliver us, but whether he does or whether he doesn't, we will not bow. Daniel, I'm serving my God. I'm going to pray to him three times a day like I always do, even though the lion's den is facing me. He did not know for sure that he was going to not perish in that lion's den because he was being obedient. Isaiah preached the gospel, and it's told to us that he was put into a log and sawn in half. God did not preserve Isaiah's life. Jeremiah, constantly being thrown into prison. <laughs> he probably wished that God didn't preserve his life so that he could have gone to heaven. But yet, he kept getting thrown into the dungeons, thrown into the miry pits where he was waist deep in mud and mire, couldn't, couldn't really rest because if he did, he would have drowned himself. And, oh, you know, and at one point he finally got to God and said, God, I give up. I'm not going to speak for you because every time I speak for you, <laughs> I get, I get, uh, I get bad things happening to him. And then the next verse is saying, his word burned in my mouth and I couldn't help but speak. We, we see all these people all through time. Some have been delivered for God's graciousness. Some have been allowed to die for God's graciousness and, and glory. And this is why if you want to be able to read how God can use death of his saints. Yeah, Jonah per totally thought he was going to die when they threw him overboard and he is in the belly of a fish <laughs> for three days. Uh, but if you really want to see how God can use the death of his saints, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great book to read. Because you, it's kind of depressing at times because everybody dies. But it also talks about how their death really gave other people the desire to serve God. Because it's if they can die so, and so with grace and mercy, we can handle it. And one of the stories that really stands out in my mind is a father and a son getting ready to be burned at the stake. And the father's faith is really wavering. And the son says, well, tell you what, whoever goes first when they see God can raise their hand and start praising. And the son got to go first, whose faith was good. And in the middle of the burning of the fire, he raised his hands and started praising God and worshiping God and gave his father the courage to be able to go to the, to the stake and not, not be wavering. But it's not just them. And we see it all through there where the people saw how gracious God was to them, even in their death, and gave them strength to be able to follow God. So sometimes we need to be able to understand the death of God's saints. He says in Psalms, precious is the death of my saints in, in my eyes. Why? They go home. <laughs> they go home and they've been able to praise God in their death. I love the stories of people who are ridden with cancer or on their last 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 legs of their life and they're witnessing to the to the workers around them and comforting their family saying don't worry I'm going home and being able to just share with people the confidence they have in God there is for a Christian 
Death is not the end. As a matter of fact, it is the best beginning that we can have. The hard part is the suffering that we go through as we approach that death. And the pain that we have to suffer and being able to turn to God and honor him. So we look at this and he says, his fire goes before his enemies. He is the one who is reigning in all of this. And this is what this whole verse, is, this whole chapter is about. God reigns. <laughs> verse 4 says, his lightnings enlightens the world. The earth saw and trembled. His lightning, his righteous judgments, is, and it enlightens, give light. His righteous judgments give light. And this is wonderful to the world. God gives light to the world. The world hates Christians and hates God because we bring light. We bring conviction to them. We are the restraining power in this world right now that keeps sin from running rampant. And we see this even in, in simple things like the government trying to do something and the church rises up and says, it is wrong. Now, we don't always win, but we bring light to the situation. We bring salt to the situation and we stop them from being as evil as they want to be. When the church is taken out at the rapture, that light and salt will not be there and the world will start to get evil quickly because there's no illumination of what they're doing is being wrong. Even though their heart will tell them it's wrong, we're seeing how the heart will lie to people and how they can, can push down their beliefs and the church won't be there to say it's wrong. And then we get the picture of Revelation during the tribulation period where sin runs rampant and God is judging from heaven to try to bring them back. His lightnings and light, and the earth saw and trembled. The earth does have troubles when we bring his truth. When God brings his truth out, things get hard for them. When we try to sin and God steps in and says, it's wrong, and we have to tremble and think about it, the world does the same thing. Even though they will tell you, there's no God, there's no truth, there's no, there's no absolute right and wrong, they know there is and they tremble at some point. Now they can get to the point where they have totally seared their conscience and ignored, their, ignored what is true, but they still deep down know it's wrong. This is why when you start reading some of the greatest evolutionist and atheist evolution teachers, they go, we know that there's problems with evolution, but we cannot accept that there is a God because if we accept there's a God, he can give rules. And they're blunt about it. They will not accept creation as a viable uh, 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 alternative that they know is a better alternative because if there's a God, that God has the right to give rules and you have to follow his rules. And that is why they will not accept that there's a God. The world will not accept there's a God because if there's a God, you have to obey him. And that is problematic for somebody who wants to sin which is everybody in this world because we have a sin nature. So we want to sin until we get saved and have the desire to not sin. Now, some people have been raised up well enough that they don't sin just because they're afraid of the punishments and, and all of that. But this current generation doesn't have that going on in most cases. Why? Because they're saying, you know, the world's telling them, if you really loved your kids, you don't discipline, you just let them do what they want. 
You know, give them everything. Let them do whatever they want, and that's, that's love, and that's a bunch of baloney. That is the opposite of love. That is really hating them to let them destroy their life because you don't want to give them the, the rules that God gives them. But because the world is teaching them there's no absolute truth, there's no, there's no right and wrong, just let your kids do whatever they want. You know, one of the things I hate was when I hear Christians, well, I don't know about having my kid learn about Jesus. I want them to grow up and kind of make up their, their own mind and we'll just let them float around and go to hell because... I don't want to try to convince them that there's a God. And I've heard Christians say, not those exact words, but say that kind of, well, I just think they need to make up their own mind. Well, I have trouble with your Christianity in the first place then. Okay, if you have a Christianity that says that you just want to let somebody go to hell so they can make up their own mind, you probably don't know God. Or you have a seriously perverted knowledge of God. And this is something we have to be careful. His light enlightens. He brings enlightenment to us. And it brings the world to a trembling place. How do people come to Christ? They realize that they're sinners. That's the only way that somebody's going to come to God. If you don't recognize you're a sinner headed for hell, why do you want to come to God? Because there's no reason to come to God. If you don't recognize that you're a sinner, there's no reason to be able to say, I need a Savior, because what do you need to be saved from? Nothing. That's why Jesus had a hard time with the scribes and Pharisees. They thought they were good. They did not need a Savior in their mind. And that's why Jesus made the statement, those that are sick need a physician, and those who are, are well do not need a physician. He really wasn't saying that they were well, but they believed that they were well, and if you believe you're well, you're not going to go see a doctor. <laughs> and the same thing with salvation. If you believe you're okay, you have no reason to seek a Savior. But if you see that you're headed for hell, you're going to want a Savior. If you're out in the swimming pool or ocean and you're drowning, you're going to, you're going to call for help because you see that you are drowning. And that's when the lifeguard says, oh, I've got to help this person. But if you're swimming around thinking you're doing okay, the lifeguard doesn't need to go to you. You don't need a savior, you're okay. And not saying that they're okay, but they think they're okay and they will not turn to a savior. And it takes God bringing the light. Verse five says, the hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. When God's presence comes in, Everything that seems solid, all those hills that people try to stand on with their false truths, melt away. Melt away, and he says, like wax. You put just a little bit of heat on wax and it melts. If you burn a candle, it melts quickly. Even if you put a candle outside at 110 degree weather that we have around here, you could watch the candle melt. Okay, and go flat. This is what he's saying. The hills. What are you, what are you thinking about? What, are, what is your strong thought? Well, hills in military thought patterns is where you go and they're defensible. If you own the high ground is a, is a very big principle of military. If you own the high ground, you are, and you are stronger than the other person because to come up the hill is more tiring. It's harder to fire, fire weapons up than to fire down. Everything about a hill is a better defensible place. The very hills that people will put their standard on and say, I believe this, 
will melt out from underneath them. And it is amazing when we share the gospel with people. And this is why one of the things I share with people, when we're witnessing to people, we don't need to be trying to attack their sins. It doesn't work. Okay? We need to attack the fact that they are a sinner. Because no matter what you're doing, you know that there are certain things in your life that you do wrong. This is why... Uh, the whole way of the master, they use the Ten Commandments and try to teach people that you're a sinner. You know, well, I'm a really good person. Are you really a good person? You know, how do you think you stand up next to God? Okay, and they'll go through this whole process. Have you ever told a lie? Well, anybody who tells you that they have never told a lie is lying in the first place. <laughs> and they know it. So everybody will admit to you that, yeah, I've told a lie or two. Well, that makes you a liar. What, what, what is it if you lie? You're a liar. Well, God says that if you are angry with your brother, then you've, it is the same thing as committing murder. Have you ever been angry with somebody without cause? Again, if anybody ever tells you, no, I have never been angry with somebody without a real cause, they're lying, they're lying still. So we can tell him now, okay, so you're a, you're a, lying, a, a, a liar and a murderer. And you do the same thing with adultery when Jesus said, if you've looked at another, at a woman with, with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Have you ever looked at somebody with lust in your heart? Almost everybody, and not everybody, has at some point in time looked at somebody with lust. So you can go, okay, so, so far you've admitted to being a lying murderer or adulterer. How do you think you stand up before God? The world knows. We don't have to sit there and fight with them over certain sins, you know. You know, well, dr now, I use drugs to the point of being, you know, going into oblivion or I'm a, a homosexual or whatever. We don't have to fight those arguments with them. We just show them where they are a sinner by their own admission and say God's standard is perfection. So how do you think you look next to God by God's standards? And then we can give them the gospel. The good news side is that Jesus paid the price so that you can go to heaven. Very critical. The first thing that people have to understand is you're lost. <laughs> You're headed to hell. You need a savior. Without that beginning point, that light shining in on them, there's no, no re reason to go into the rest of the gospel because they're not going to listen. They have to understand that there is a problem. Verse uh, 6 says, The heavens declare his righteousness, and all people see his glory. The heavens declare his righteousness. Again, that, that definition for righteousness is any, what, is, what is right just and honorable or normal. The heavens declare what is right, just and normal. It's not a problem. People will see it. And the whole earth sees his glory. This is so important that we look at this. This is why when, when I talk with people about evolution and creationism, I'm going, you're rejecting God and therefore you believing the only thing that makes no sense. And I'll show them the scientific problems with evolution. I'm going, it makes no sense. There has to be a beginning. There has to be something that started all of this. And the world declares his righteousness. And it shows it to everybody. This is when Paul in Romans said that every, the very nature declares God his righteousness, his holiness, his honor. And it says in verse 7, Confounded be all they that serve graven images and boast themselves in idols. Worship him, all you gods. 
Confounded means put to shame. Put to shame all those that will follow their idols or graven images. And what are graven images? Anything that is above God. Anything above God. And then he repeats it through idols. And it's amazing in our day and age, most people go, well, we don't worship idols. We have just as many idols in this day and age that they did before. We just don't coat them in gold and, and stick them in a corner somewhere. But many people have a great big idol in their room and all the chairs face that idol. <laughs> and they vegetate in front of that TV for hours on end and don't get into God's word, don't spend time in prayer, don't spend, you know, it's not a problem to watch some TV. Okay, believe me, I understand, I watch TV. I don't quite enjoy much of it anymore. I'm watching less and less of it. But it's not necessarily wrong to sit there and watch TV as long as God has a place in your life as well. It's not wrong to do certain things, but if it st starts working its way that it's more important than God, you've got a problem. People get into sports, and their, their sports happen at the same time that a Bible study or a church session go, and they go, well, I think I'll just watch my game tonight. Uh, or the, in the morning, and God will understand. You know, the, the, the game is only one time a week, and you know, it's, I can go to church anytime, and then they f find other reasons not to go to church the other times. It's very important, and I've shared with you, it was very interesting to me that I, even in the days when I was an avid NFL fan, I never watched the Super Bowl because the Super Bowl was on Sunday night during church. I would tape it and hope that somebody didn't tell me the score before I had a chance to watch it. <laughs> Very rarely happened, you know, I'd always have somebody that would tell me what the score was before I had a chance to watch it. But I had said, this game is not going to be more important than God. And I mean, and I can't judge the people who do, that's between them and God, but, you know, I've known many people over the years that they've got to watch their Super Bowl, so it's, you know, they wouldn't come to church, you know, because, and the bad thing is the Super Bowl was always on a Sunday night during, during church service. So it, it, there was a problem and a conflict, but we have to be able to say, what is more important to us than God? Very important for us to consider that. Is there anything in my life that I place above God? And that's a serious question that we need to ask because many of us have something that can take God's place. What do we do on a Tuesday, uh, Monday, when there's no, no services or Bible studies? You know, how much time does God get out of our day? And I've shared with you that I believe the tithe that, that God wants is also a tithe of our time, not just our possessions, which means that God wants 16.8 hours a week from us, 2.4 hours a day, almost two and a half hours a day. Do we give him that every day? And I know that's just as rhetorical for us to, under, to, to start thinking about. For, for many of us, we do. For some of us, we don't. But the key is, do we honor him? Is he getting a portion of our day? Are we spending time in the word? Are we spending time on our knees praying? Are we spending time listening to other, to being taught during that each day? How important is he to us, really? And this is where sometimes we have to just kind of bite our tongue and bite our, our desires to lie to ourselves. And you know, it's so easy for us to lie to ourselves. God, you're number one in my life. Nothing can take your place. And God says, I want you to share the gospel with this person over here on the, in the line. God, I just don't know if I want to talk to this person. Uh, I'll go switch lines. God, uh, I don't know that, you know, you wanted me to talk to this person. I don't know about that. 
God, you wanted me to go to church. Oh, I was just a little too tired to go today, so I'm going to stay at home. And that's not saying there aren't times when that's, that kind of stuff can happen. Sometimes it may be better to stay at home if, you're not, if there are certain sicknesses. But if you're finding yourself always too tired when it's church time or always too sick when it's church time, you've got some problems. And you and God have to have some discussions about getting some victory over Satan's lies every time the church doors are open. God, I'm just so tired I can't read the word. God, I'm so tired I can't do what I can't pray. We need to be careful about all these things and be willing to face the truth in our life. What is the God of our life? Because that's what he says. Let all the God, uh, worship him, all ye gods, little g, they're not really gods. He says, everything that would stand against me is to worship me. Be used to worship and be put in subjection to God. And that's why we need to be really willing to look at our life and say, what is more important to me? And sometimes that's a hard thing for us to swallow. And sometimes, you know, and I've said this before, and a lot of people have said it, that sometimes the best way to find out what's important to us is look at what we spend things on. And that doesn't mean we can't. Unfortunately for most of us, our, our house or our, our rent or our mortgage is probably the highest bill that we pay. And unfortunately, that has to be paid if you want a roof over your head. But we look at this and say, what is important to us? What am I spending all my money on? And say, wow, it could be food. It could be any number of things. It could be entertainment. We look at all these things that are going on and say, what is an idol in our life? And if we have no idol, then praise God. And, but analyze it later on, a couple months down the road, and make sure no idols have slipped in. We look through the history of Israel and, Ju- and, and Judah and when a wicked king would come in, idols would slip into people's lives and be raised up. And it, we have this desire to do wrong if we're not careful. And it happens. The book of Judges is a great example. And they did what was right in their own eyes, and the next thing you know, they were subject to some other per- person. And usually that, what was right in their own eyes was idol, idol worship. We want to be careful that idols do not slip into our lives and it happens so slowly on us and that's usually what exactly happens to us is he starts to replace what we used to desire above him with him and that's why I gave up football because God I heard God say are you are you ready to give up football and spend more time with me and my people and first couple times he asked it, I said no <laughs> kind of like what you're saying about TV but over time it was like why am I wasting my time watching all these dumb games that have no, no eternal value? And then I'm going, God, you know what? I think I want to spend more time in the Word and with your people on, on, Sunday, on Sundays and Monday and Thursday. <laughs> and again, we're not saying that it's totally worthless and totally bad. Again, God will change our heart when we start seeking Him. And this is pretty much how you get past anything in your life that is not godly. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sin. My desire for football was not sinful, other than how much time I spent with it. But God says, are you ready to just put me first, even above something that you like? And as you grow in Christ, you're going to see him do more and more of these things. Are you ready to give up this? It's really keeping you away from, it's not sinful, it's just keeping you away from me as much as you should. And it might be a hobby, it might be an activity. It could just be the waste of time of the, the TV. But God says, are you ready to replace this 
with me. It's easy with sins for him to do this with. All right, verse 8. Zion heard and was glad. The daughters of Judah rejoiced because of the judgments of the Lord. And, and remember, Zion is another name for Jerusalem or, or that whole mountain, that whole mountain. So Zion heard and was glad. The daughters of Judah rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. The righteous people will rejoice at the judgments of God, at the movement of God, at the righteousness of God, which is why we're the salt and light of the world, because we rejoice, we bring in with gladness his rules. And this is so funny, because how many times are we accused of being afraid of some sin? If you're speaking out against homosexuality, you're a homophobe, you know, you're afraid of homosexuals. No, I want the truth of God. No, it's just, that's what you're, if you watch news, that's what you'll hear Christians called. That's what they'll call, they'll call us Christians. They'll say, well, these Christians are, are homophobic or afraid of homosexuals, or they're believing in those fictions of the Bible, and they, they've, got to, they've got to evolve with the rest of the world into where we're at today. But the righteous will rejoice in God's truth. And that irritates the world. It irritates the world to be told that they're sinners. It irritates the world to be told that there is a right or wrong. It irritates the world that says, we're going to honor God no matter. These people that are persecuting these companies because they won't bow their knee to the world and want to represent Christ, they're not understood by the world because the world says, you're willing to give up your business for this? And the answer for a Christian is, if it comes to that, then I'm willing to give up my business to stand for God. And the world does not understand that kind of thought pattern. We as Christians think differently from the world. They do not understand us and they cannot understand us because they're coming from a totally different perspective. We're coming from God who has rules and righteousness and has an eternal home for us. If we take everything away from us in this world, we haven't lost anything really because this is not our home. We may suffer for a time in this world, but we get to go to heaven and have home for eternity where God will say, okay, you gave up all of this here. I'm going to give you much more for what you gave up. So when we give up things in this world, we really do not give up things where it matters. And that's heaven. We give up things we think we really want or need, and we have eternal reward. And we need to keep that in mind, the eternal reward. So we're not giving up anything. We rejoice in God, and in the long run, we're going to be rewarded. No matter what we give up on this world, we're not giving up anything. And that's one of the things I love about God. The little things we do for him are going to be rewarded. The things we give up are not really given up. He's still going to reward us for, for giving up what he, what he says is not right. And when we stand up against the world and we are martyred or, or belittled, we're going to be rewarded for that. In Revelation, it says those who were martyred came up, on, you know, came up how long, O oh God, until you give us justice? And God says just a little longer just a little longer because he wants people to have a chance to be repentant because this is God's heart always is for people to come to him and when when they harm us he still wants them to come to him and he will give them the chance to come to him this is why when people sin and seem to be successful in all that they do it's not because God is letting them get away with things but because ultimately 
if you really get to know them, they're not successful in their, in their life and they know it. Many rich people are never happy because they don't have God and the riches that they thought would get them there don't fill that emptiness, which is why many times they'll either commit suicide or get into drugs and alcohol and lose everything they have because the riches didn't help them, so they tried to find something else. And this is why when you read the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon says, I've tried everything and nothing filled the void. And he tried it through work. He tried it through alcohol. He tried it through, through uh, women. He tried it through possessions. He tried everything and found out that none of it fulfilled and finally realized that he needed to go back to the God that he was following at the beginning back to God to be able to be satisfied. And if you start talking to people who look successful and you think they've got everything all under control and you really look at their lives, they don't have it all under control. And you see this in our celebrities and, and sports heroes and everything. Those guys don't have their life together in any way, shape, or form. And we look at them and think, well, how could it not be? They've got money, they've got a big house, they've got this, they've got that but they don't have God. And God is saying, the righteous rejoice in him. Verse 9 says, For you, Lord, are high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all the gods. Going back to you reign. <laughs> the Lord reigns. He's above everything. There is nothing that is higher than God, nothing that is stronger than God, nothing that is equal to God. And this is why we bring this out is so many people somehow believe that Satan is God's equal on the evil side. No, he is a created being that if God wanted to get rid of him at any moment could just unthink him and he would no longer be in existence because he is created. You'll hear some people go, well, Satan has to exist because God is good and you have to have bad so you can get good. No, you don't need bad to get good. That is a Eastern mysticism, mystery Babylon mentality. You do not need bad to be able to show good. Well, there's people that say you have to have evil to know, to know good, and that's not, not a true statement. Verse 10, you that love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. And I love this. If we love God, we will hate evil. Why? Because God's indwelling us and changing the way we think about evil. And this is important. As we grow spiritually, we will get to the place where we begin to hate things that are evil that we may have had no problem with before. This is where I am with TV now as I'm watching TV and I'm going, I hate most of the shows that are on TV that are new. I'm coming to hate most of the older shows as well because they still, they weren't as blatantly evil as they are today, but they still had a lot of things that aren't godly in them. They masqueraded as good in many cases, but there was no foundation for their good and they were all worldly wisdom. But we, we look at these things and say, if we truly are in love with God, 
his way of looking at things will start to come out of us. But it is true, and if we think about this as we've grown, as we've grown in God and we start looking at the things that we used to, maybe, used to think were okay or that we could tolerate or that I could do, and as you get, as you get more and more related to God, you start understanding this is just flat out evil. This is just evil. And as we grow in God, the more we start seeing the evil. This is why it's important. As God changes who we are, we're going to see things more the way he sees them. Even when we first started out as a Christian, we, thought, we probably thought a lot of things were okay that I did in my life. And then the longer I walk with God, the more I realize just how sinful I am is in, in, in the reality of things. And just the little things that you find that you thought you used to be able to do or that you could do and you could, and you look back and you go, I don't do these anymore because, why? You start realizing, oh, they were ugly. They were evil. And that's because we're falling more and more in love with him. But I love it on this. He says, he preserves the souls of his saint. God guards his people. And then it says, he delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Now, as we grow in him, we start doing less things that put us in those positions in the first place. But ultimately, God is the one who does the work. He protects us. He preserves us. He keeps us away from things. Now, that doesn't mean we go in the middle. You know, if, you, if you're an ex-drunk, that doesn't mean you go into the middle of a wild party where everybody's getting drunk and say, God, preserve me. <laughs> You know, we don't want to be that dumb. <laughs> if we have a problem in a sin area, we don't go running in the middle of the temptation of it and say, well, God's my preserver, so he's going to keep... No, you're going to be that dumb. You're going to fall. He is the one that keeps us out of those stray attacks, those ones that come out, of, come out of the middle of nowhere. He is the one that keeps us. He is the one that changes us. He's changing our heart to not be wanting to do that. But it's he that does the work. And this is what we brought out in, in, in Psalms all this time. He is our defender. We do not need to defend ourselves. And a matter of fact, and I've said this over and over, the more, every time I try to defend myself, I make a mess of things. When I let God be my defense, he does a good job. Actually, he, does more, he, does, he harms them more than I ever would have prayed for them to be harmed in many cases. Because he knows what needs to be done to stop them from hurting us and sometimes it takes pretty drastic things and sometimes I've spent more time in prayer God be merciful to this person than God go get him now David often said God go get him and I don't I'm afraid of saying God go get him because I've seen God go get people without my prayer even I've seen God go get people and I don't really want to see that I want you know if that's what it takes to get them to come to God then that's fine but I want God to be as merciful as he can to these people and God says he is the deliverer light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright light is sown now light in Psalms oftentimes is doctrine and truth doctrine is truth is sown for the righteous we get into how God thinks what the truth is and he sows it into our hearts and changes the way we think and gladness in the upright heart. How often have we spent time just being glad? Not necessarily happy. We're joyful or glad even when bad things are happening. Again, go back to the beginning of this. Everything hinges on those first three words. 
The Lord reigns. How can I stay glad when bad things are happening? God reigns. How can I stay glad when, when all hell is breaking loose in my life? God reigns. Because Job had all kinds of crazy things, but it was all because God reigned. And he said, okay, Satan, you want to do these things? You can go this far. When bad things are happening to us, God has said to Satan, you can go this far with my child down there and no further. Satan has a leash around him and he cannot go past that leash. He sows his truth. He sows this gladness. And then it says, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Rejoice, you who are righteous. Those of us that are doing what's right, just, and normal will rejoice in God. And then he says, and give thanks in the remembrance of his holiness. This is something that I bring up because it's all through the Old Testament where God said, make a memorial. Uh, when they crossed the Jordan River, they put a pile of bricks, of, of stones up there so that when their kids say, well, what do those mean? Oh, that's when God brought us across the river into the promised land. When they would pr do the Passover and they would be consuming the lamb, they're going, what does this mean? This is when God delivered us out of Egypt and made, took us out. You know, all these different things that we put, what we bring into remembrance. And God says, remember what I have done for you. And this is one of the things I keep bringing up. If you need to, if you can't remember them, write them down so that when you're having a hard time, you go back through the book and say, yes, God did this, God did this. And do that when you're in a good place. Really get down and write all the blessings that God has done for you. So the day when you're waking up and everything's miserable and it seems like everything's going wrong and you're tempted to believe that God has never done anything good for you because you're so far down, you bring out your little notebook and go, oh, yeah, it's a lie that God has not done anything good for me. Look at this. This is all a lie. Look at all these good things he's done. But we do want to keep this remembrance. What has God done for us? Because we've all been there where it seems like everything's going wrong and we, get this, we start getting in this mindset, God has never done anything good for me and Satan really beeps it up and, and, and keeps reminding us all the bad things in our life. And if we just take a moment, and it's not positive thinking, it's just saying God has blessed me. It's a lie that he hasn't blessed me, and we buy into these lies from Satan. Satan will come along and tell us that we're worthless and not good, and God doesn't love us. And you know what? The best answer for him is, you know what, Satan, you're absolutely right, but I have Jesus in my heart, and God sees me as perfect and righteous and, and the apple of his eye, because that is how God sees us. He doesn't see us as worthless. He doesn't see us as somebody who has done nothing in our lifetime. He sees us as perfect in the righteousness of Christ, the precious adopted child of his that he has chosen, that he is the, as we read in Proverbs, we're, we're apples of gold and in, in, uh, frames of silver. He sees us that precious, that the, the apple that he sees us is more precious than the frame he's put around our life because gold is more precious than the silver that he frames it with. We want to be able to understand when Satan attacks us, he's a liar. He may be telling us facts, but he is not telling us the truth. He is a liar. The facts are we are sinners, we are miserable, we are terrible, but the truth is we're in the righteousness of Christ and we're perfect in God's eyes. We need to really understand truth and not the facts. Satan throws facts at us all the time, but it's not the truth. 
and he twists the facts to make us look bad. And God says, however, here's your truth. Here's the truth. You've accepted my son. My son has you in his hand, and he's clothed you in his righteousness. And by the way, I'm holding my, my son in my hand. So these people who are going to tell you that you can get away from Jesus by jumping out of his hand, all you're doing is jumping into God's hand. And you're not getting out of God's hand. You can't get out of Jesus' hand, but you definitely can't get out of the Father's hand. Let's close in prayer. We're going a little longer than finishing this. So, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that you love us so much, that you have truth for us, that you care for us, and that you sent your Son to die for us, and that you have a truth that we are special to you in all things. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.